We are going to pick up where we left off in our series, Sovereign Suffering, which is an exposition of the book of Job. Uh, two weeks ago, we examined chapter 7 and looked at the second half of Job's response to Eliphaz, where he described his burden, his brevity, his bitterness, and his bewilderment or confusion. Immediately following Job's response to Eliphaz, Job's second friend, Bildad, begins to speak up. He had sat by and listened to Job uh, go on and on about his misery, and at this point, he could no longer contain himself. He was actually angered by Job's defensiveness and rejection of Eliphaz's counsel. And he felt that he now had to speak up and admonish his friend, the battered patriarch Job. Bildad's initial response to Job, or first speech, is recorded in chapter 8. It is forceful and fiery. Uh, it's at another level above Eliphaz's speech. Eliphaz's speech was pretty hardcore, but, but Bildad's first speech is, is pretty brutal, pretty brutal. Now, Bildad puts it on Job pretty good, but he also feared that Job was about to be completely destroyed by God, right? In Bildad's mind, God had destroyed his family and his wealth and his health and all these things because of some hidden sin. And now Bildad believes that, look, you're barely alive. You have these boils all over your body. You're barely alive. And, and I believe God is going to completely destroy you, which is something that Job had been praying for. He wanted to die. But in any case, Bildad thinks that's about to happen. And he, he, he believes that at this particular moment, he has to lead Job back to a right standing with God so that doesn't happen. This is what's in his mind. For teaching purposes, I have categorized Bildad's first speech under four subheadings. We will look at Bildad's perspective. We will look at his plea, his proofs, and his promises. Hopefully, by breaking down the chapter in this way, it'll help us understand it better. I hope you're ready to take some notes. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8. I'd like to pray once more before we begin. Father, we have worshipped you through the reading of your word, through singing your word, through a, a greeting and an offering that we have, we have brought to you, Lord. Now we are going to worship you through the teaching, the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you are glorified now. We pray that as your word goes out, that it, it accomplishes, you cause through the Holy Spirit for it to accomplish all of your purposes for your people that are here, and for those who are not yet your people who are here. And so, Father, we, we pray that you're glorified now. We pray that you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our minds to your beautiful word, and we pray you're glorified, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we'll pick up where we left off two Sundays ago. Let's begin with the first subheading. Number one, Bildad's perspective. We see this in verses 1 through 4. We'll start at verses 1 and 2. Here's what happens next after Job is done with his, his response to Eliphaz. It says, Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, and here it is, 
How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? <laughs> According to Bildad's perspective, Job's speeches thus far were like a forceful, continuous windstorm filled with lots of hot air, like a Scirocco or the Santa Ana winds. He's also concerned with the duration of Job's speeches. You can, you can see it in his response here. How long will you say these things? In other words, he's, he's tired of, of hearing Job speak and complain and cry about his misery. He actually wonders if Job is ever going to stop complaining about what has happened to him or speaking so foolishly because that's how the friends saw Job's speeches as, as foolish. He wants Job to stop saying these things, quote, and that is defending himself. Stop defending yourself against our counsel. We're telling you what you need to hear is what they believe, what they think, what Bildad is saying. He wants Job to stop complaining, stop defending himself, and just go ahead and agree with them, and then go ahead and repent of these quote-unquote alleged hidden sins that have led to his destruction. But we know that Job had no hidden sins to repent of. He was blameless. He was upright. He faithfully obeyed God's instructions regarding burnt offerings to make sure that his sins were covered. Right? We, we learned all of this back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. When Job's calamity came upon him, he was in a right standing with God. He was living his life for God. He didn't have habitual sin in his life. It's not that he wasn't a sinner. He was a sinner, but he was making the appropriate sacrifices. He was even making sacrifices for his kids in case they sinned. He was a godly man. He was a blameless, upright man. And these friends are persuaded that he's not. He's lying. He's hiding something. So we know that he was in a right standing with God. Now we move to verse 3. Bildad says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Bildad assumed that since Job was suffering, he must have sinned because God would only exercise justice toward Job. Because God is just, Bildad surmised that Job had received what he deserved. Like Eliphaz, Bildad possessed a two-dimensional theology, a theology of what I call rewards and retribution, like in Islam and other false religions, right? These religions are based entirely upon rewards and retribution. When you do good things, you get good things from God. When you do bad things, you get divine retribution. You get punished. That is the, the, the basic theology that Job and his friends held. This is what they believed. Bildad's theology had zero category for righteous suffering. So Job could not have been innocent like Job kept claiming that he was. Right? Job was just flabbergasted and, and totally confounded by how he was a righteous, blameless man, and yet these things were happening to him. He couldn't figure out why God was allowing it or having these ha things happen to him because he's in a right standing. Job didn't understand righteous suffering. These friends, Bildad, didn't understand righteous suffering. They didn't have a category in their theology for this. Uh, Bildad thinks that Job must have done something wicked, something 
particularly heinous to stir God's anger and bring about divine retribution at this level, right? Uh, I think we would all agree that, that uh, losing all of your wealth, especially when you're the greatest man in all the East, right? You are the wealthiest man. You are the Trump, whatever you want to call it, the gates of your day and your community. When you lose all of your wealth, when you lose all of your children, 10, can't even imagine what that's like, and then you lose your health, he must have done something really, really bad to earn that kind of retribution from God. That's Bildad's perspective. To pervert justice means to twist it, to bend it, to, to make it crooked, like a, a merchant using false weights, Amos chapter 8, verse 5. It is to make crooked what ought to be straight. God never does that. And Bildad is right here. God, God never perverts justice. God never perverts the right. He never does anything like that. Bildad is entirely right. So for Job to suggest that God has treated him unfairly, that in Bildad's mind is totally out of order. You're getting what you should have coming to you, Job, because you must have done something. According to Bildad's perspective, God would never pervert his justice by letting a sinner like Job or anyone off the hook. I suppose Bildad believes that God would let a sinner like him off the hook. That's how self-righteous people think. They don't think that God has an issue with their sins, but they think that God has an issue with everyone else's sins. Bildad's perspective is that if, if God does not punish Job for his sins, that would be a perversion of justice. Why? Because sin demands justice. See, Bildad is entirely right. He's just wrong about Job. Like we've said about this letter over and over and over, it's a, it's a pretty decent letter, and many of the things that the friends say are spot on. They're just misapplied. They don't apply to Job. But I'll tell you what Bildad had. He had a major problem, and so did Job, I think, and Job learns this by the end of the book, and so did Eliphaz and Zophar. They, they had a, a, a major problem and defect and that was that they had zero concept of grace. No concept of grace. You see, what grace does is it, it redirects God's justice away from the sinner and puts it on an innocent. That's what the grace of God does. Grace does not pervert justice. It satisfies justice through an outside source. In Job's day... And then later, under the Mosaic Covenant and law, the innocent were unblemished animals, right? Think of the sacrificial system. Men and women who are guilty of, 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 of transgressions and transgressing God's law, sinning, they brought these animals to make a, 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 a propitiation to alleviate God's justice and satisfy God's justice and wrath against them for their sin. It was a temporary thing, but that's what they did. They brought the animals. The animals were sacrificed that quelled the wrath of God against them, that it, God would take his justice instead of putting it on the sinner. He put it on those innocent animals that had their throats cut. They'd bleed out. They were thrown and burned on an altar. These innocent animals were sacrificed as burnt offerings on an altar to temporarily satisfy God's justice against the sins of those who offered them. Now, in our day, under the New Covenant, we're talking about outside sources here, right? Grace takes the justice of God and redirects it onto an outside source. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it was animals. In our day, under the New Covenant, the outside source is the perfect 
Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has permanently satisfied the justice of God through His finished work on the cross for all who repent and believe. And here's my point, really. They had no concept of grace, and yet they had grace being expressed before them every time they made an animal sacrifice. That is grace. It is God's grace to provide for them a way for His justice to be satisfied on an innocent. That is an expression of grace. It might be a bloody and nasty expression of grace, but it is an expression of grace. But what was the Lamb of God, Jesus on the cross? That was a bloody, nasty, heinous expression of God's grace. So these men did not understand, had no concept of grace, and yet grace was being displayed before them regularly, regularly. Now, if Bildad had understood grace just a little, understood how it was being displayed before him in the sacrificial system and, and in a thousand ways, we could even say that the fact that he has breath in his lungs is grace. The fact that he has food on his table is grace. The fact that he has friends at all is grace. God doesn't know us anything. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And if he had understood the grace of God just, just 1%, if he had just understood it a little bit, his theology would have had a category for righteous suffering. And wouldn't he have treated Job much differently? Yeah, he would have. He would have treated Job vastly different from how he was treating him. Vastly different. See, in, in, in a world where we have grace right now, we have grace right now. Grace isn't going to last forever, by the way. But in a world where we have grace, the righteous can suffer. But they didn't get this. And if they had understood that, they would have understood that Job could, could be right with God and suffering. And then they could have given him grace instead of heartache. Verse 4. And this is the most brutal line in this entire response from Bildad, this first response. This is just, this is just heinously ugly. Listen to what he says. If you're, remember, Job's ten children died. They were killed in a violent windstorm that knocked the house down and crushed them. Satan was behind that, remember. If your children have sinned against God, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. This is easily the most cruel and least tactful part of Bildad's first speech. It is a, a restatement of the basic theology of rewards and retribution that these three friends held so tenaciously. Bildad's reasoning was that Job's children must have sinned in order for God to have taken their lives. Had the rest of the Bible already been written, Bildad might have also cited the deaths of Korah and his companions in number 16. I most certainly would have pointed to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Praise God the Scripture hadn't been completed or written at that point because he would have just went right down the line. Look at all these things that God did to all these people who wouldn't repent. According to his perspective, Bildad, bad things happen to bad people. And if a really bad thing happens to someone, it proves that he or she is a really bad person. Your kids must have been wrapped up in some kind of wicked carnality and wicked sin for God to have brought that house, to raise to that house and brought that down upon them and killed them. They must have been really, really bad, Job. 
And you, obviously, are really bad as well. Not quite as bad as your children, but whatever you're doing or have done must be pretty wicked because look at you. I can't even look at you. You got worms all over you. This is the mentality. This is the perspective. There is no grace in his theology. There's no place for sacrifice and certainly no place for the cross in the way he thinks or believes or lives his life. If, if we have a two-dimensional theology of rewards and retribution, we're never going to understand the cross. And this is why the majority of people in the world don't understand it and reject it. They can't get their mind around how someone righteous can suffer. Was Christ not the most righteous? Of course. Did he not suffer? Yes. But if you hold this view of rewards and punishment, rewards and retribution, you're not going to understand grace. You're not going to understand Christ. You're not going to understand the gospel. And this is what, I don't know, a billion Muslims believe. This is what many Christians sadly believe. This is what the Jews today believe. They have a rewards and retribution theology. There's no room for grace in theirs at all. And, and their whole history is marked by continuous grace. This is what happens. This is what's so dangerous. Rewards and retribution are, are a real theology and they're biblical. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But we must never forget grace. Never. Now let's move to the second subheading. First was Bildad's perspective. Now we're looking at Bildad's plea. We see this in verses 5 through 7. We'll pick it up at verses 5 and 6. This is what he says next. After just excoriating Job and blaming the death of his children on their own personal sins, which they had sacrifice made for them, they weren't in sin. He says, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy... If you are pure and upright, how the heck is Job supposed to make himself pure and upright? If you will make yourself pure and upright, or if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. According to Bildad, the fact that Job is still alive must mean that his sins are not as bad as his children's sins. He then pleads with Job to seek God, really before it's too late. The Hebrew word for seek is shakar, and it means to go early, and it carries with it a sense of urgency, like you need to go now to God is what Bildad is saying. It's actually an echo of chapter 1, verse 5, where Job would do this regularly, where he would rise early and make burnt offerings for each of his children. J Job was already in the habit of rising early and seeking God, and yet this is what Bildad is telling him he must do. Job must have been thinking, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, pal. I mean, how, how unhelpful is it that when we go to give counsel to somebody, we just regurgitate what they already know. And they're like, I, I, I'm already there. I've already been there. I'm, I'm already, I've got the shirt. Look, been there. And that's, he's telling, he's just, he's telling him what he already knows, what he already does. How is this helpful? Ultimately, what Bildad isn't doing is really listening to Job. He's not really paying attention to what he's saying. He just chocks it up as hot air, and I don't need to listen to this. It's just a bunch of garbage. And then he gives back wisdom that Job already has. I think Job was thinking, you got any other suggestions, smart guy? While seeking God, Job must, what Bildad says is, 
plead with the Almighty for mercy and prove that He is pure and upright because this will somehow rouse God to restore His rightful habitation. But Job was not in need of divine mercy at this moment. He wasn't, he wasn't in need of purity or you know, uprightness. He was these things. He already was. He had experienced the, the mercy of the Almighty through the burnt offerings that he was making regularly. And God himself declared Job upright three times. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 3. Job was everything that Bildad suggested he'd be, plus a bag of chips. You need to be this. Well, Job was all that with Doritos. This is why Job started to become impatient with them, because they were just telling him over and over and over to do the things that he was already doing. How frustrating this was for Job. Plus, no amount of seeking, pleading, or proving would rouse God to change Job's situation because God was in the process of proving to Satan and to all creation that His people, using Job as the example, actually worship Him for who He is, not just because of what He gives. So, so in, in the sovereign plan of God, it doesn't matter what Job says. It doesn't matter what the friends say. It doesn't matter what happens here. It, it's not going to change what is currently happening because God is working through this. God ordained this thing. He is working through this thing to bring about His glory to all creation, especially before the enemy, the devil. He's using Job to prove that, look, I can all the things that Job... Satan, you say that Job worships me because he listens to Joel Osteen and, and you know, it, that's why? Because he has all this stuff and that's why he worships me? That's what Satan indicts God on. And God says, well, then take everything away and you'll see that he still worships me. And, 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 and all of the things have been taken away, but, but, but Job is still being tested. There's still a test being laid out. He's now being tested by Satan through the friends who are hammering him and pulverizing him and, and telling him things that he doesn't need to hear and not helping him. Job is still being tempted through the whole book. There was a divine purpose. We learned that in chapter 1, chapter 2. There was a divine purpose behind Job's suffering. And, and, and that divine purpose would, would not even be revealed to Job, which, okay, that's, that's fun. But there was a divine purpose, and that purpose was what? To prove that God's true people worship Him, not as Joel Osteen would suggest, but worship Him because of who He is, not because of what they have. Strip all the stuff away, and the true people of God will keep worshiping me. That's the test. That's the purpose of the book. So no matter what Job or anyone else does, it's not going to change the outcome. It has to run its course. It has to go from point A to point Z. There's a lesson in this for us, that if we're in the midst of something and, and we're begging for it to end, it's not going to end until God makes it end. And for some of us, He's not going to make it end. But it's not retribution, per se. You know, we want so badly for God to act on a situation that it doesn't happen, we get frustrated. We're asking for the wrong thing. We're not to ask for things to end. We're to ask for grace to survive, to make it through it. Job's suffering had a divine purpose, and that's what's so beautiful about the book of Job. It's revealed to us. It had to run its course. 
and it would prove to be worth it in the end. Our suffering has a divine purpose. It must run its course, and it will prove to be worth it in the end, even if we do not get relief in this life. That's not the worst thing that can happen to us. How will our suffering be worth it in the end? 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs, far outweighs them all. The, the things that we're going through, God uses to sanctify us and make us more like Christ, but ultimately to bring us to glory, an eternal weight of glory. Verse 7, and though your beginning, this is Bildad, and though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. This statement is a bit surprising. Job's beginnings were hardly small. He was the greatest of all the people in the East, chapter 1, verse 3. Perhaps by your beginning, Bildad means the state Job is now in. In any case, if Job repents and turns back to God, Bildad says there is a chance that his latter days will be very great. Now, this was a prophetic assertion that would prove to be true later. Job's latter days were, in fact, greater than his beginning. Chapter 42, verses 10 to 17, God doubled up all the blessings that He had with the exception of children. But this greatness at the, in, in the end and, and toward the end of His life, in His latter days, this greatness, this prosperity, it did not depend on the conditions laid out by Bildad. God doubled Job's wealth in the end because it was His will to do so, not because Job followed his friend's religious processes. You got to understand this. A plus B doesn't always equal C. One plus two, sometimes with God, equals 29. There is no formula or recipe that we can work out to, to, to you know, produce some kind of result. No, it, Job, Job got doubled up just about everything at the end of his life. He was richly blessed. God graced him with all these things because it was his will to do so, not because Job took the advice or, or followed these simple steps or read the book called The Secret. Remember that tragedy? In chapter 4, Eliphaz used a mysterious revelatory dream to support his theology and undergird his instruction to Job, basically through a prophetic dream that he claimed to have in Job's face, showing that he had the authority to correct Job. In the next section, Bildad uses three proofs to support his theology and do the same thing, undergird his instruction to Job, to make his instruction, his counsel to Job very serious. Listen, here's some proofs. You better do what I'm telling you to do is what he says here. Let's move to the third subheading, Bildad's proofs. We see this in verses 8 to 19. We pick it up at verse 8 and 10, or 8 through 10. Here's what Bildad says next. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you, and tell you, and utter words out of their understanding? Okay, so he's giving... Bildad is giving Job proofs, right? He gives three. This is proof 
from the past. This is the first one. According to Bildad, the godly people who lived before them had, and how convenient, had the exact same theology as Bildad, identical. All the fathers, everyone who believed in, who believed in God and made sacrifices, did the things they're supposed to do, all the godly people of bygone ages, they all basically believed the same thing that I believe. And they taught the same principle, Job. God rewards the good and punishes the bad. Now, we have to ask this question. Which godly people was Bildad referring to? He doesn't bother to name one. And I'll tell you what, when you name something, it's got a little more weight, right? When you identify, you know, you say, hey, the Bible says this. Eh, that's got some weight, but it has a lot more weight when you actually read out the verse. Who's he referring to? He doesn't mention anyone here, so we have no idea who he's talking about. Were there actual godly ancestors who held these same beliefs, this theology of rewards and retribution? Were there actual people? I mean, was Bildad using hyperbole or fibbing? No. There were people who held those beliefs? Absolutely. Rewards and retribution is an ancient theology. It is rooted in Scripture. See, this is why you can't slam the friends too bad, because a lot of times they're biblical. They just didn't have grace. We see examples of rewards and retribution throughout the Bible. Like in Leviticus chapter 26, in verses 3 through 13, we see reward. And in verses 14 through 22 of the same chapter, we see retribution. How many times have you seen... In, in, in the Old Testament where God says, if you do these things, this is how I will treat you. If you obey my commandments, you will prosper in the promised land. If you don't, I'll kick your butts out. Rewards, retribution. It's biblical. I'm not saying Islam is biblical. I'm just saying that the, the, the baseline two-dimensional theology of rewards and retribution is biblical to a degree. We see examples of it. I like what Robert Alden, a commentarian, said. He said, what Bildad and the others offered is well-established, long-held wisdom. In large measure, Job's instructors were correct, and numerous places elsewhere in both Testaments support them. And then he suggests this, it was their inflexibility and closed-mindedness that so bothered Job. But like I said earlier, the thing that was missing in Bildad's theology was grace. Grace is throughout Scripture too, not just rewards and retribution. Grace is painted all over the pages of the Bible. We see it at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 and in verses 15 and in verse 21. How do you suppose Adam and Eve got those animal skins to cover up their nakedness? Grace. Grace. Bildad wanted Job to consider the bygone ages, the, the fathers of old, because he believed they had his exact same theology, rewards and retribution, but he was wrong. The true fathers, fathers like Adam and Noah and Abraham, guess what? They believed in grace. They believed in grace. Did they understand grace like we do? No, they didn't have the full revelation of God. Christ had not come yet, but they did believe in grace. They understood grace to a degree. Bildad does, however, rightly acknowledge that both he and Job knew nothing 
in comparison to the fathers of old, the bygone ages. The reason was that they were really only born yesterday, or they were just too darn young to know what the aged know. So he does acknowledge that here. He says, our days on earth are a shadow, that is, they're short and fleeting. Psalm 144, verse 4, Ecclesiastes 6.12. Assured that past generations can best impart knowledge, Bildad asked, will they not teach you? Surely, ages from previous generations could teach Job a lot, Bildad reasoned. Will they not utter words out of their understanding? The uh, accumulated wisdom of the past must be heard and heeded, Bildad believed, if Job were to escape his present trial. That's, in essence, what he's saying. So its first proof is the past, from the past. Verses 11 through 13, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? This is pure poetry, by the way. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Even the baby agrees with the scripture. You hear that? He's telling us all. This is proof from what? We heard the past. This is proof from the papyrus or plant life. The answer to build dad's questions, right? Because he asks questions here. The answers to the questions that he asks in verse 11 is no and no. And this is a, a, a common thing in, in Job. I mean, the book is primarily poetry, and in poetry you would ask questions where the obvious answer is no, and that's what he's done here. The answer is no and no. Papyrus will not grow without marshy conditions, and reeds will not flourish without water. None of that stuff can survive without that. Now, his point is that certain conditions must prevail in order for specific results to follow. This is, in a sense, well, it is. It's not in a sense. It is. It's cause and effect. It's cause and effect. We can even think of, of that theology of rewards and retribution as cause and effect. The parallel here with this nature example, poetic nature example or metaphor, is pretty simple. Certain conditions must have prevailed for Job to be suffering. Bildad believed it was hidden sin. That was the certain condition. In verse 12, Bildad describes how these swamp grasses sometimes die unexpectedly while in full flower. This was another jab at Job. His children had died unexpectedly while in the prime of youth. This is another parallel to the death of his children. Big point, if Job does not take Bildad's warning seriously and these examples he's giving through nature and these things, and if he doesn't take them serious and if he doesn't repent of his sin, he could die unexpectedly like his own kids. Which if you go back and read the two, uh, or the lengthy response from Job, you'll see that he actually wanted God to kill him. Verse 13, Bildad issues his strongest warning in the chapter. Those who forget God will wither and perish just like swamp grasses. This is entirely true. This is a proverbial truth. It's a biblical truth. It's just misapplied. The parallel is that if Job does not take decisive action and repent of his sin, he will be like the godless and eventually perish. That's the poetic parallel. So that's... What, we have proof from the past, we have 
proof from nature or the plant life, the papyrus. Now we go to verses 14 to 19. Bildad says this next, his confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. That's not much trust. That's pretty thin, unless it's a black widow web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. And then 19, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Now, you're probably saying, okay, there's a whole bunch of poetry there. What is going on? This is proof from the pagans or the godless. Think of it as the godless because that's who he was talking about in verse 13. The godless forget God and they perish, right? In verses 14 and 15, Bildad tells Job that the confidence of the godless is easily severed and their trust is weak and flimsy like a spider's web. Since godless people trust in flimsy, fragile things like wealth, family, and health, they lose all confidence when those flimsy, fragile things are removed, right? This is the poetic parallel. This is what Bildad is saying through the poetry. According to Bildad, Job's trust was as thin as a spider's web because his confidence seemed to be severed after he lost his wealth, family, and health. He charged Job with trusting in temporal things like godless men do. Right? Your confidence left you when your children and your health and your wealth went away. Your confidence left you. Well, guess what? You're acting like a godless man because that's how they act when those things are removed. This proves that your confidence and your trust was based on the things you have, your kids and your wealth and your health. But now you have no confidence, so you're just a godless man. That's what Bildad is saying through the poetry. This is brutal, by the way. It, it seems cool because it's poetry, but it's actually an assassination attempt. But we know, that, we know that Job did not trust in temporal things. We know that he did not trust in his wealth, children, or health. We know this. His reliance was on God alone. We know this. Chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 10. Again, what Bildad is saying is biblically true and accurate, but misapplied because Job should not have been receiving this because he was not in the shoes to receive it. In verses 16 to 17, Bildad tells Job that the godless are like lush plants that spread out over the surface of a garden and intertwine their roots with stones. But they are easily pulled up and destroyed because they have no anchor in the soil, no deep root. According to Bildad, Job was like a, a lush plant that had been easily pulled up and destroyed. His estate, his, his business, his family were spread out over the surface of us, his community where he lived, right? But everything was easily plucked up and pulled up and destroyed. Why? Because of his alleged hidden sin. He charged Job with being rooted in sin like godless men. But Job was not rooted in sin, Again, these things are true, but misdirected, misapplied. Job 
wasn't rooted in sin. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He made burnt offerings for his sins and for the sins of his children when they were alive. Right? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This has already been established. In verses 18 and 19, Bildad sarcastically declares that Job will soon be dead and forgotten and that he should take joy in knowing that others will own his wealth occupy his house, and oust him from his high position at the city gate. I said it earlier. That's what he says through the poetry. This is brutal. I wasn't using hyperbole at the beginning when I said that this was straightforward and this was fiery. It it is terrible. How could a friend say these things, whether it be through poetry or not, to a man who just lost everything? who's supposed to be a fellow brother. You can hear and even taste, it's palatable, the anger of Bildad. The poetry seems to soften it, but I don't think it does. I think it amplifies it once you decode the poetry. This is forceful and fiery. It is brutal. Hey, you you know what? Just, 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 die. And then guess what, Job? Somebody's going to take your house and probably take your wife and take everything else that you have and take your position. I mean, this is nasty. Those were his proofs, right? Proof from the past, proof from the, uh, from, from nature, from the, what the heck is it called? The reeds, the papyrus, and proof Proof, lastly, from pagans, the godless. All these things happen to godless people. Their trust is a spider's web, all this stuff. Everything he's saying is true. It's misapplied. And now we go to four, the fourth subheading, Bildad's promises, verses 20 uh, through 22. And this is, it almost seems like a consolation. It's still, it's because of the context, it's still nasty. Verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. That's the last thing he says to him in his first speech. He offers Job four promises here. First, he promises that God will never reject a blameless man. Okay? Application. If Job will accept Bildad's counsel and repent of his sin, he will become blameless and God will accept him. That's what he's saying. Second, Bildad promises that God will never take the hand of evildoers. Application. If Job will not accept Bildad's counsel and repent of his evil, his sin, he should expect nothing good from God. No relief, no restoration, no nothing. That's what he's saying. Third, Bildad promises that God fills the mouth and lips of the upright with laughter and shouting, ha, 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 woo right? That was dumb. Application, if Job will accept Bildad's counsel and repent of his sin, he will become upright. That's what you need. You need to be upright before God. And what will God do? He will fill your mouth with laughter and he will fill your lips with shouting and, and praise and these sorts of things. You, you know, you, you won't be crying out in agony any longer. 
He will put happiness on your face and he will put joy in your tone and he will put, you know, and your lips will just utter praises. That's what he says. But you got to repent. You got to do what I tell you to do first. That's the third one. And then fourth, Bildad promises that God clothes the enemies of the upright with shame and he will destroy the tent or life. Tent means life of the wicked. Application, if Job will accept Bildad's counsel and repent of his sin, those who ridicule Job will be put to shame when God restores his wealth, family, and health. And if the wicked Sabians and Chaldeans return to plunder his fortunes like they did before, God will collapse their tents. He will kill them. He will destroy them. This is the, these are the promises that Bildad gives to Job. If he will only repent and become right with God, and he was already repentant and right with God. <laughs> like Eliphaz in chapter 5, Bildad basically promises Job his best life now if Job will simply follow these time-tested steps. That's really Bildad's speech in a nutshell. Closing. Job did not need Bildad's counsel. There wasn't anything in this entire response to Job that Job did not already know or wasn't already practicing. Okay? It sounds foolish to say, well, you don't need someone's counsel. Well, sometimes we do need people's counsel. But maybe we don't need their counsel if they're just regurgitating what we already know and understand and what we've already told them. He did not need Bildad's counsel. And yet, he didn't need any counsel from any of his friends, to be honest with you. Nor did Job need to repent. Now, as we study the book, we, will, we don't want to think of Job as sinless, because I do believe that he sinned in some ways. But his sin had nothing to do with this testing and the calamity that fell upon him. Where he sinned was in the constant questioning of God's sovereignty. That's where he sinned. And God rectifies that at the end of the book and points that out to Job and rebukes him pretty sternly. But he did not need to repent of any of the things that Bildad and Zophar and, and Eliphaz were telling him to repent of. He was already blameless and upright. Right? This has been established early on in the book. God made sure that we would understand that the things that happened to Job were not tied directly to his personal sin. God, made, God granted him clemency right up front to make sure that we understood that this was not because he had done something wrong. Job was already blameless and upright. Why? Why was he blameless and upright? Because he accepted the wisdom of bygone ages and followed his friend's time-tested steps? Or maybe because he made sacrifices and did these religious things that he, he knew he had to do? Was, was that why he was blameless and upright? No, 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 no. He was blameless and upright because of grace. Grace. Grace made him blameless and upright. Grace in his heart poured into his heart from the Father. Grace represented, exampled in the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was an expression of God's grace. Grace. Job was who he was because 
of grace, not because of what he was doing. It was grace that made him positionally upright and righteous before God. And then it was his following that initial grace that he was given in salvation. It was, it was his obedience engaging in those means of grace that God gave that made him practically, in a practical sense, blameless before God. Because believe it or not, we, we might be blameless before God because of the righteousness of Christ, but how we live our, our lives also impacts how we are seen, whether we are blameless or not. But I, I would just err on the side of it was 110% grace. That's why Job was blameless and upright. It was all grace. Grace is what makes Christianity unique and different from everything. Grace is the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. It is God giving sinners what they do not deserve. That's what grace is. Job was was born a sinner and sinned. He didn't deserve anything from God, but God gave him grace. This is what makes Christianity unique and and distinct from from everything. No, No other religion has this. None. Grace cannot be earned or merited. The the, the moment that we begin to say that we play a role in the grace of God, it ceases to be the grace of God. Grace is one way and one way only. It comes directly from God. And not because we're looking rightly at Him. Hey, give me grace. The, the, The moment that we add any human merit or earning or work in that or compliance to it or anything like that, it ceases to be grace. It is one-way unmerited favor. It cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. There are no steps we can follow to get it. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. It is the gift of God. It is freely given by a gracious God. Grace saves. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer. You're not saved because of your obedience. You're not saved because you accepted Jesus. You're saved by grace through faith. God graced you, and that's why you're saved. But grace doesn't just save, it sanctifies. Grace sanctifies. We're sanctified by sovereign grace. What does that mean? It means that God, through His grace, conforms us to the image of His Son. Over time, He chips a little way, a little bit more of fill away and makes me look a little bit more like Jesus. Boy, it's a slow process. But that's what grace does. It saves and it sanctifies us. It, it reshapes us and renews us and remakes us into the image of His Son, which is the purpose of our salvation, not just golden streets. Grace sanctifies. And guess what else grace does? It empowers. If you have any strength or fuel to obey God or to serve God, grace is the fuel. 
Grace is the combustible material that fires the engine of your soul so that you can obey, so that you can serve him, so that you can treat people rightly and kindly and mercifully and give wise counsel unlike these three buffoons. Grace does that. It, not, it doesn't just save. It doesn't just sanctify. It empowers. It is the gasoline. It is the petrol. It is the, it is the nitrous oxide that drives us. Grace. Job was who he was because of grace. Do we have the grace of God? Do we have the grace of God? If we have the grace of God, our lives will be vastly different from what they were before. You see, today in the church, people think that you can have Jesus and just keep being who you were. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, if grace does not make you differ from your own surroundings, is it really grace at all? Oh, I think it's a type of grace, but it's not God's grace. Christians should be the most holy people on earth because of grace. Christians should be the most joyful people on earth because of grace. Christians should be the most grateful people on earth because of grace. Christians should be the most humble people on earth because of grace. Christians should be the most compassionate people on earth because of grace. Are we marked by grace? Are we holy? Are we joyful? Are we grateful? Are we humble? Are we compassionate, especially toward those who are suffering? I mean, you can tell Job's friends had no grace just in how they treated their friend. They did not understand grace. When is the last time we shared the grace of God with those who do not yet know Jesus Christ? When's the last time we shared the gospel of God's grace? Pastor Cameron told us last Sunday, this is our mission. Mark 16, 15 corroborates. When was the last time we actually stopped what we're doing in these fast-paced, busy lives? When is the last time we actually just, as the people of God who, who say we have the grace of God, when is the last time we just stopped and thanked God for His grace in Christ Jesus? When's the last time you did that? Last Sunday when you came to church? The Sunday before when you came to church? Shouldn't this be something that we do every day, pretty much all day? I'm guilty of this. In a moment, we will sing one last song together. I want it to be a song of thanks to our Lord for His grace. But I'd like to pray and let the Holy Spirit 
potentially reveal any graceless behaviors or patterns we might have in our lives at this, at this point and, and, and give us an opportunity to confess those patterns, those behaviors, to turn from them, just to acknowledge and to turn from them so that we can together collectively, individually and collectively, live our lives in such a way that brings God consistent, persistent glory. The only way that we're going to bring God glory in our lives and through our lives is if we understand grace, acknowledge grace, and live in accordance with this wonderful grace.